Thank you, Damon, and good evening, church. It is so good to be here with you, to sing with you, to study God's word, and to feast at his table together. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Proverbs 6. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 19 together. As you're turning there, remember, Proverbs is interested in showing us how to live faithful and fruitful lives in a world that is both designed and ruled by Yahweh. Now, in these past nine chapters, or in these nine chapters, first nine chapters, the way that Solomon seeks to accomplish that is by describing, generally speaking, two pathways. The only two pathways upon which humanity lives, the pathway of wisdom and the pathway of folly. Now, in this giant subsection that we're in the middle of, Solomon affords us the opportunity to peer down that roadway of folly, to put it simply, that we might see the folly of folly. So we might understand how disastrous it is and so that we would never be dissuaded or even dream of stepping foot on that road. Now in this giant subsection, the main theme that he will be addressing is adultery, which he addressed the, the last time we met together in the sanctuary and he'll be addressing that next week. But what he's talking about in our passage, he takes a break from that major theme And he addresses three common forms of folly that we would do well to avoid for our good, the good of the people of God and for his glory. So let us read it together, starting in chapter six, beginning at verse one, God's word says, my son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger. If you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son. And save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, without having any chief officer or ruler. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and wants like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, desires evil, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he'll be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and the one who sows discord among brothers. Church family, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you for saving us, for bringing us into your family that we might be one with you and one with one one another. We pray that you would send your spirit down upon us, that you would teach us from your word, that you would encourage us from your table, that we might live lives reflective of you and your kingdom. We love you, God, and we pray these things in the blessed name of the risen King Jesus. Amen. I've entitled this sermon, Don't Be That Guy. 
It's a catchphrase that, uh, well, it's been in use ever since I've been alive, and it's a common reproof among friends. I'm sure you've all heard it. If you haven't, it refers to behaviors that are either so annoying or foolish, they draw attention to a person in very unflattering ways. That's why very kind friends say to their friend, please don't be that guy. Have you ever seen the show Seinfeld? They've made a living off of don't be that guy in every episode. There's a book on Amazon, which I haven't read, therefore don't endorse, but it is entitled Don't Be That Guy. 60 people we all know and kind of wish we didn't. Some of my favorite examples are the one upper guy. No matter what your story is, their story is going to be a little bit better and a little bit bigger. The close talker person, the mansplainer, and my personal favorite, the person who texts way, way too many pictures to their friends of the food they just cooked guy which I'm reflective of every Tuesday and Saturday when Sarah allows me to break out the smoker, okay? And I don't care because I enjoy smoking food and taking pictures of it. But nevertheless, don't be that guy. We've heard it said. People have said it to us more than likely. I bring it up because in this passage, that is kind of what Solomon is doing. He is sitting Israel down and he is saying, don't be that guy in three different ways. Remember, Solomon's purpose is to help us live in godly practice or godly practices, help us to live lives that are reflective of who Yahweh is and his kingdom. And in order to do that in this passage, he presents to us three ways of folly, three foolish people that do vary in degree of foolishness, but all of which end neither ensnarement or judgment. And so Solomon says, just don't be those guys. And in so doing, he points us to the way of wisdom as the better way of living. Now, each of these little three sections are basically sermonettes. There's so much we could say, so we're just going to basically approach the the, the surface of them. But it's very important things for us that we might live wisely in a world created and ruled by Yahweh for his good, for our good and his glory. So let's look at it together. First off, in verses 1 through 5, Solomon says, Don't be the well-intentioned fool. The well-intentioned fool. In these first five verses, Solomon uses a financial illustration, which he'll actually repeat later in chapters 11 through 17. So what I want to do really quick is address the illustration, then try to ponder the point, the underlying point that he's making. Look at verse one, first off the illustration. In verse one, we have a man who willingly became a financial surety for a stranger. Now that means for our guy, there was someone in his life that he barely knew, a stranger, who took out a loan. And our guy in this text co-signed that loan. Now what that means is that this stranger defaults. Our guy is responsible for paying the tab. Now in order to become a financial surety, he had to pledge a significant portion of his wealth, some form of asset, perhaps the deed to his home, right? So that's what he has done here. Now, if you look at verse two, what God is saying to us is that if you have done that, you're not running the risk of becoming ensnared. You already are ensnared. He says your future and your well-being are now in the hands of someone who even the bank thinks is a bad bet. And you have put all of your decision-making, all of your financial future, all of your security in his hands. Otherwise, you know, it's a, banks thinks he's a bad bet. Otherwise, this person would not be asking for a cosigner. So apparently that happened a lot back then because he will repeat this once or twice more, I believe in chapters 11 and chapter 17. 
But even today, this is not a good idea. If you go to the Federal Trade Commission website, you'll see a four-paragraph warning to really sit down and think about it if you ever find yourself at the crossroads of making this decision. Why? Because at best, it's speculative risk. At best, it's speculative risk, and it has the ability to completely ruin you and your family, financial security, and financial future. In light of that, in verses 3 through 5, this word says, if you find yourself in such a situation, humble yourself, plead, do whatever you can to find freedom from this financial obligation. That's the illustration. That's on the surface what's being said. Now, before we try to apply the point that is being made, a couple, op- or a couple uh, qualifications. First off, on the surface, that sounds kind of mean, right? Because aren't we, we're, we're called to be generous. And here's a person who's in need. I mean, he has such a bad credit score, he needs a cosigner. And aren't we called to be generous? Well, of course we're called to be generous. God was generous with Israel. He set up nation to be a nation of generosity. I mean, he, even when it terms to debt, they have laws to help people get out of debt. And as Christians, we know that Jesus has been generous with us. We're called to be generous to other people. But what's being described here really is absent-minded generosity. That's almost akin to gambling. Now, right here, I mean, this isn't a hard and fast law. This is a principle. But what's happening right here, I mean, essentially, this person is wagering his life and his family's life and their kid's life on someone who is not a safe bet. And of course, there's wiser ways to be generous with those, especially in this particular need. Secondly, it seems like this specific scenario, I was just thinking, it seems like this scenario does not hit home with a whole lot of people in this room, right? Um, It might, but it doesn't seem like it does. A couple of things. First off, you do not have to be a very rich person to become the financial surety of another person. You just don't. There's lots of moms and dads and grandparents who are pressured by distant relatives whom they very well might love, but pressured by them to become a financial surety for them, someone who is a bad risk. And I've spoken with several friends who are working out in the city and several families find themselves in generational poverty because they've been pressured into such a decision. Having said that, yes, I don't think many of us will ever come into this situation where this will be directly applicable. That's why we have to look down beneath to see the point that is being made. Um, Kathleen Nielsen and her commentary, first off, she makes the point that it seems ridiculous, first off, to, to pair this situation of folly with the previous one, uh, which was about adultery. I mean, how did Solomon's mind go from adultery to an unwise financial decision? It doesn't seem to make sense. But then she says, well, that's exactly the point. Folly varies in both flavor and degree. What combines these two, what connects them, seems to be a lack of prudence. It's a lack of prudence that leads someone to to set up their financial security, the well-being of their family, and the health of their marriages to risk. The underlying theme, the underlying point being made here is a lack of prudence. And I tend to agree. Because what is prudence? Prudence is the... It's the ability to think cautiously and carefully. As Christians, let's just phrase it this way. It's the ability and discipline to think theocentrically. To think with God and his word in mind. It's the ability to live, act, and think in light of who God is 
and his word, understanding and realizing that God has something to say in every aspect of our life. Now, as I was studying this, I began to think, you know, that's what I need mostly. I'm sure that's what you need too, for us to be reminded of how to live out essentially a Christian worldview, right? Because more often than not, I think what our greatest problem is as Christians is that uh, we dabble with something I like to call functional atheism. That doesn't mean that we're atheists. You know, we believe Jesus. We're resting in Jesus. We believe the gospel. But oftentimes, whether it's because of the busyness of life or whatever, we, we often don't live in light of those things that we believe. We act as if Jesus isn't on the throne. We act as if Jesus doesn't have something to say about the various aspects of our life. And so let's just think about this particular situation. How often do we not ask the question, what does Jesus want me to do with this job and this income and this wealth that he has given me? Because it's not mine, it's his, it's a gift. How does he want me to steward it for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom? Another example, the example from two weeks ago, how does, how does God want me to behave within my marriage? Your marriage might not have gone the way that you thought it would, but that doesn't matter. How does God want you to behave in that marriage? How does he want you to love your spouse in the way that that Christ has loved you? How do we live in light of who God is and what he commands? Alistair Begg says that after all is wisdom to think theocentrically. With every decision that we have to make, whether it's financial or otherwise, to think who is God and what does he have to say about this decision? And it's in another text, but he gives two great practical questions for us to ask in every decision. First off, is it right? Is this within God's will? That is, is this sinful? If it's not sinful, okay, move on to the next question. What is best? And that is, what what is best for God's glory and for the advancement of his kingdom? But the point is, no matter how well-intentioned you may be and how I may be, If we're not weighing every decision in light of who God is and what he says in his word, if we're not living out in our Christian worldview, then that's just foolish. And inevitably, that will lead to being ensnared. It could be like what happened to this man here. He was no longer in charge of his life. Financially speaking, he was no longer able to make decisions. He was no longer able to serve God and his kingdom because his life choices were now in the hands of another person. He was ensnared. What could be said for all of us, though, it could be reflective of the conditions of our heart. Perhaps the reason that sometimes we lack prudence or we live absent-mindedly as if God does not have something to say about this aspect of my life is because we are not fearing the Lord, which is the definition of folly. So Solomon is looking at Israel. He's looking at us and he's saying, don't be like the well-intentioned fool. Think theocentrically. Secondly, in verses 6 through 11, he says, do not be like the sluggard. Now, studying this, I mean, kind of made me laugh, right? Because he's kind of a pastor and he has a wealth of illustrations, a skill that I wish I had because I'm constantly looking for illustrations. But look what just happened. He moves from an illustration of the financial times into an episode of Planet Earth on Netflix narrated by David Attenborough. I mean, that's that's how this reads. Just look at it. It says, don't be a slug. And if you are a slug, learn from the ant. What does he mean by that? We'll get to it. 
But notice what he just did. He moves from the well-intentioned fool now to the inactive fool. It's progressing in level of folly. So what does he say? First off, he says, don't be like the sluggard. What is a sluggard? This actually pops up in multiple places in subsequent chapters. But if you just look at verses 9 through 11, to put it simply, the slug, the sluggard, is the lazy person. He is someone who is constantly making soft choices, missing out on opportunity after opportunity because he refuses to make a decision. He's compromising in his life, sleep in a little bit longer, skip work today, pay that bill next week. And because of that, that accumulation of soft decisions, that accumulation of making no decisions, he wastes his life. Furthermore, it's someone who just refuses to face reality. Someone who, instead of embracing the the challenges of life, he makes excuses. And that, unfortunately, is very common today. A great example of this is in Proverbs 22, verse 13, when the sluggard says, there is a lion outside. And if I go outside, that lion is going to destroy me. So I'm just going to stay inside, like on mom's couch. I'm not going out there. Now, that was written to produce reflective questions in the mind of the reader or the original audience. And they would have said to themselves, a lion? I mean, I know this isn't Memphis in the 21st century, but we're a little bit more, we don't have lions running around, not in front of the marketplace. The lion's not going to eat them, but what is out there is not a lion, but it's a life to be lived. Ah, there's opportunities to be seized. There's a job to do. And there's a mission that God has given him. And if you think about it like that, that that really is the issue at the heart of the sluggard. The tragedy of the sluggard's life is not the temporal ruin that his laziness brings him, although it will bring that. If we're lazy in life, we're going to lose our jobs. We're going to miss out on opportunities. We're not going to be trusted with responsibility. Things like that are natural consequences for being lazy. But that's, that's not the great tragedy. The great tragedy is this laziness is a sin against the Lord. Right? I mean, God designed us to work. He made us to work. I know sometimes we think work is a result of the fall, but it's not. He, he gave us that commission, that command before the fall. And he gave us a purpose in working to pursue his glory and the advancement of his kingdom, no matter what our job is. I mean, we all have the opportunity to shine our light for people to see our good works and to give God glory for it, right? I mean, Jesus himself says, seek first my kingdom. When he said that, that wasn't an intellectual exercise, but that was a command rather to get out there, to roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty, singing his kingdom to go forth. But unfortunately today, sluggardism, which isn't a word, but that's a virtue, Right? The constant pursuit of an overabundance of leisure. And we face that temptation all the time as Christians to skirt our responsibility, to skirt the opportunities in which God gives us, to grow weary with God, bored with God and his kingdom, all for the sake of our pleasure and entertainment. And what Solomon is saying, hey, don't be that guy. And if you are that guy, we have a common grace here. Go to the school of the ants, which is what he says next, which I think is both humiliating and amazing. Humiliating that we're supposed to go to ants to learn a thing or two. 
amazing that God in his kindness and common grace put something in every one of our backyards to show us how to live a life that is pleasing and glorifying to God. So first off, let's just look at verse 7. In verse 7, he says, as the one who labors under the Lord, and by the way, all of us are called to labor under the Lord. You do not have to be a pastor, a college minister, or anything like that. We all labor under the Lord in whatever our job is. As those who labor under the Lord have the inner motivations of an ant. That's what verse 7 says. Have you ever noticed that you've never seen a foot-dragging ant before? I mean, I don't know. You may have. Who can see? But that's the point Solomon is making here. He says an ant doesn't need a boss looking over his shoulder, making sure that he shows up on time, or making sure that he does his job and does it well. The ant just does it for his own welfare, but also for the welfare of the colony. That's why you've, you've never seen a, a, a deterred ant line going after that food that you left out on your kitchen counter the night before. Right? I mean, it's just they keep coming. I don't know where they're coming from, but you need that rape can because they keep coming, they keep coming, going after it. And Solomon is saying, well, what if Israel was like that? What if the church was like that? What if they just saw the need, they saw the opportunity which God gave them, and they went after it for their good and the good of the church, for the good of the kingdom of God, and for the welfare of the city? And they don't need a boss looking over them. They just wanted to do that. Secondly, look at verse 8. He says, look too to the ants who prepare for the future. The ants work today for tomorrow. They're not just hoping that tomorrow turns out okay. They're preparing today for tomorrow. Now, there's a whole lot of application we can take from that, but let's just think about the spiritual application. There are storms coming. And some of us are in them right now. Some of us have experienced them recently. But there's storms coming. The winter of discontentment is approaching. Storms of temptation are coming. What are we doing to prepare for those things? Are we storing up God's word as a food stores up food, as an ant stores up food? Are we storing up? Are we harvesting God's promises and nestling them in our hearts? Just think about Jesus in the desert. He was in a one-on-one battle with the evil one, facing temptation. And how did Jesus win? It's because he had stored up God's word in his heart. Are you storing up those promises of God now for those difficult times ahead? Or as George said this morning, are you regularly going to worship? Because worship is, yes, God deserves it, but it's not only our response to his grace. Worship is something the Holy Spirit does in us, shaping us, informing us with the gospel, cutting deep grooves in our brains and our hearts, as George says. The, the question the ant poses is are we taking advantage of today for God and his kingdom and for his glory? The opportunities which he gives us. And so Solomon is saying, don't don't be the sluggard. Don't waste your life. That's going to end in ruin. By faith, be like the ant. Take advantage of the opportunities which God gives you for your good, the good of the church, the welfare of the city, and the glory of God. Now lastly, And most seriously, Solomon says, do not be the divider in verses 12 through 19. Now with each person, Solomon is progressing in degree of folly. Again, remember, do not be like the well-intended fool. Secondly, don't be like the inactive fool. But now he says, don't be the malicious fool. Or as he says in verse 12 in the original Hebrew, 
He says, don't be Belial. That is a name that is attributed to Satan, by the way, in 2 Corinthians 6. In other words, what this passage is saying, church, don't be satanic. Which is kind of dramatic. I mean, how do we get there? We started out being a well-intended fool, then a little bit lazy. Okay, bad things. Satanic. I mean, that's a huge jump. How'd you get there? And how in the world can we as Christians act satanically? Here's how. Just like him, we get busy deceiving others and sowing seeds of discord, which unfortunately is very common in the church. All of us are sinners. All of us are in need of repentance. All of us have the nature of wandering down that road of folly. But all of us have the ability of sinning aggressively. And that is what Solomon is condemning in these few verses. How do we sin aggressively as the divider? Well, look at the verses 13 through 15. Solomon says there are a bunch of little things that we can do, all with huge impacts. Verse 13, nonverbal communication. A little wink here, a little head nod there. Verse 14, seeds of discord, which, by the way, don't have to be these grandiose lies. They could be half-truths. They could be innuendos. Statements which are meant to confuse. Statements that throw another reputation of another person under suspicion. All of which stem, verse 14, out of a perverse heart, looking out for number one that seeks to conquer and divide, to tear down one person, even just a little bit, in order to build yourself up in just a little bit. To be satanic does not mean to have horns or a pitched fork. It means to be prideful and willing to dare down another person for your own benefit. And then look at verse 15. Look how seriously God takes this. He doesn't play around with it. He says, I will punish that behavior. I will judge it. Why will he judge it? If you look at the grand scope of scriptures, because he sent his son to die in order to unify us. A unity that division, or rather a unity that deception and discord destroys. That's, that's why he's so serious about it. And unfortunately, it's something that happens all the time. We, we, we've heard story after story of, I mean, how many friendships have been ruined? How many, how many relationships have been broken? How many churches have been split? How many reputations have been stained by such actions? And we, heard silly, we hear silly stories and sermons all the time, you know, of doing this, you know, Someone throwing another person on the dreaded church prayer list that didn't want to be on the church prayer list. Pray for Frank. He's a gambler. I didn't ask you to do that. Why would he do that? To tear him down a little bit and to build yourself up? I mean, there's a number of ways that we can do this. But look how seriously God takes it. Verses 16 through 19. He gives us an Old Testament literary device, a list of six and seven items, which God hates, by the way. But this is a poetic device and what's un- how to understand what's being driven home here is by looking at the last item in the list. And what's the last item? Discord among brothers. That one item frames everything else that's previously mentioned. So what God hates about haughty eyes or a lying tongue is how they contribute to the division that's being made. So haughty eyes is arrogance towards others. A lying tongue, gossip, little seed of discord. All of it contributes to that division. Maybe it's just a little bit, 
but it's building and it's brewing and it's contributing to that. And God says here that he hates it. Have you ever thought about that, that God hates things? He hates sin and he hates everything that would bring division to the one thing that Christ died to unite. He hates it. Now, it's really amazing, too, if you think about it. When God reveals to us what he hates, he also is showing us what he loves. It's kind of like when someone says, I hate cats, right? I know the cat lovers could never dream of anybody saying, I hate cats. But when someone says, I hate cats, that usually means they love dogs. When God tells us what he hates, he's showing us what he loves. And what does he love? He loves our unity. That blood-bought unity, that other-centered fellowship that Christ has given us. Psalm 133, verse 1. Oh, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. Solomon is helping us live out practical godliness in the fear of the Lord. How do we do that? It's kind of confusing. We keep on saying fear of the Lord up here. What are some practical ways we can do that? Well, one, you think theocentrically. And that's what he's telling us in those first five verses. Understand that God claims everything in our life. So live a life in view of who God is and what he commands. Don't grow lazy in doing good. Those middle sections, that middle verse. Then lastly, pursue unity. Laying down your life for the sake of the other. Counting others more significant than yourself. So don't be these other people. Don't be the well-intentioned fool, the inactive fool, or the malicious fool. But brothers and sisters, we cannot honestly deal with this text, study it with any degree of honesty without coming to the conclusion that we are very much that guy. I mean, this, this passage kind of serves, uh, you know, when Nathan confronted David, David, you are that guy. This is what this passage is saying. You are that guy. Whether if you like it or not, I mean, at times you Barton, Live as a functional atheist. At times, church, you are lazy and doing good. This is what Solomon is saying to us. And even if you don't recognize it as such, at times, you have been the malicious fool. Breaking others down, tearing them down in order to exalt yourself. Living in a way that God hates. And so what this passage does, more than anything else, friends, is it shows us that our hope, our only hope, is the other man, the Lord Jesus Christ. I know Proverbs can become redundant every now and again. And it's redundant stunning and it's redundant preaching. I feel like sometimes I'm saying the same things over and over again. But that's the point. That's the main point. It's like when growing up, you know, my parents watched Murder, She Wrote all the time and and Matlock. They didn't watch those shows to see if they're actually going to solve the case. It's kind of boring in that way. Of course, they always solve the case. The mystery was, how are they going to solve the case? When we come to these chapters in Proverbs, it's the same thing over and over, just told in different ways. Friends, we are not wise. We are fools. And what we need more than anything else in this world is a relationship with the wise one, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 presents the life of Jesus, the very wisdom of God, for two reasons. One, to show how Jesus saves fools like us. And two, to show us how to live wisely like Jesus. So just think about it. Jesus is the only one who has been perfectly theocentric with his mind focused on God and all things, obeying the Lord to the point that he became man in order to become our surety. 
Job pleaded with God, God, be my surety. Who else is going to pledge their life to me? Job was saying, God, I know that I'm an unsafe bet. I know that I'm the worst bet. I have so much debt. I need you to deal with it. And that's exactly what God has done in the person, his son and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has paid our debt in full with his blood. Jesus lived the perfect life, the life that we needed to live. He accomplished the things that we needed to do, but were lazy in doing. He accomplished the work on the cross so that those of us in him will hear the father say, well done, my good and faithful servant at the end of the age. Jesus is the one who laid aside his rights, his privileges, his glory for our sakes so that we might be made one with him and one with each other. Church, Jesus Christ is our only hope. We see that every single sermon and every single page in Proverbs. So right now, church, let us come to the one, the one who laid his life down for us, the one who paid our debt with the price of his own blood and shows us how to live wisely in this world, designed and ruled by him. Let us pray. Holy God, we are broken sinners. We are often foolish, lacking in wisdom, deserving nothing but judgment. Therefore, our one and only plea, our grounds, our assured hope is the Lord Jesus Christ who paid our debt so that we might be free. And we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to live out that freedom for our good, the good of this church. And for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.